I would say that uh, Leaves of Grass is one of the greatest poems written in modern times in the English language. Okay. And that there is a huge corpus of Emily Dickinson's poetry, which is very great. And then when you get to the 20th century, what I would put with that order of greatness would be Hart Crane's The Bridge, quite a bit of Wallace Stevens. This is great American poetry for me. And what's bad American poetry? Identify if you could. Well, it's, inter- it's interesting. And then why? When you get, get modes of badness, there's simply stuff that I wouldn't even consider poetry. It's verse of some kind or another. Skillful or without skill. doesn't attempt to say things in new ways. It isn't saying one thing and meaning another, which is what Robert Frost said poetry was. Ulteriority. Fiction. And it, it didn't really have that quality of being fiction. Really making something up. Parables. And a lot of, a lot of very, very bad poetry now is not... It isn't even... In, it's beyond being inept because in a certain mode of bad poetry it's perfectly competent. Within yeah. the definitions of what yeah. it's trying to deliver. Yeah, it used to be it used to be easier to pick out incompetence when everybody wrote accentual syllabic verse and people wrote lines that didn't stand. You say that's easy. How do you point out to someone that there's a lot of free verse that doesn't scan, although there's a lot of great free verse, and to be able to pick out the difference between exactly those. that's what I'm asking you. I've tried to put so much bad poetry behind me now. I, I'm, in my imagination, taking books and shoving them off the table. I suppose it's new kinds of sentimentality. Sentimentality which has survived the modernist assault on sentimentality by irony and come out the other side with a kind of rusty irony <laughs> of its own. It's, uh, I find it in a great deal of great deal of poetry now. There are some there are some wonderful poets. I'll be glad to praise particular that, poets that I admire. Let's do that. Uh, uh, people who are now, what, 20, 25 years younger than I am. Well, uh, there's a poet named Rosanna Warren who's, I think, marvelous. And specifically why? Her immense skill in writing. Sensitive ear. Sensitive to what? To the structures of language and to, and to the consequences of saying one thing one way rather than another way. To her knowledge of the history of poetry and the sense the what she has selected from what she knows that might perhaps be of use to her. Be of use to her in delivering as what as she wants to say. She's also a she's also a critic of the first rank. She's in a book of criticism about to appear. So, so I, I think very very highly of her. Can you be more precise and specific about why she you think she she stands above the rest? All I can say is that I can bear that I bear to read her and reread her and every time I reread a poem of hers I have known and read in the past I learn something more about it. I suppose that's it.
there's a depth and complexity yeah, yeah, and layers yeah. that and uh, I feel very close to very close to this work close in that it speaks your uh, truth yes or it, speaks, it speaks to my concerns but uh, she speaks to concerns I didn't know I had and then when she's spoken to them I realize I had them anything in particular no no uh she has been able, for example, to write some poetry quotes out of, unquotes, direct experience. This is a term I tend to loathe that people use. As if what you had read were not direct experience mm-hmm. or a pain you feel in your foot is direct experience in what you read isn't direct experience. I think this is silly and produces a lot of bad poetry based on this bad conviction. This conviction that it has to be based on real experience. Yeah. If yeah. I, you know, uh, what's real experience? If I drop a heavy weight on my toe and let out a yell, according to such views of poetry, most people hold that view. That's the best poem you could have because there's no one that makes you of language getting in the way. I just yell, ow, and it's pure poetry, right? Pure expression. But poetry isn't pure expression. It's making. <laughs> this is what the word means. And the interesting tension between what you feel and what you make and the relation of making and feeling, which is always very problematic and complex. This is some of the sources of the greatest things in poetry. And she has been able, on several occasions, to write poetry out of that without being sentimental or embarrassing, and that takes real gifts, as far as I'm concerned. The making of the poem, the making of experience, are you suggesting then, from your own imagination? I'd like to clarify. No, but making, making, I mean the way the languages work. Yes. Because that's that's a crucial matter. Poems are made up out of language. They're built and assembled. And but you, you talked about the hammer falling on the toe and, and the exclamation of, ow. Now... That's not, that's not poetry. Poetry has its origins very often in peculiar uses of language. I think that what's very akin to the basic stuff of poetry are funny pathological situations. Lies, dreams, riddles. What about the desire to have sex with someone of the opposite or same sex? What about Marvell's to his coy mistress? Well, that's in the first place. That poem is not about Marvell wanting to get a girl into bed. The poem is about the convention of such poems, of which there are dozens. Carpe diem. Yes. It, it's, it's about carpe diem poems and about the other side of the coin of the carpe diem poems, that most of those okay, but not great. That's a great poem. That's a great poem. And But non-great poems don't look at, which is the memento mori. And the language is so brilliantly constructed and intricate. It's the whole poem structure in three movements. If you look at the, just the opening section, we've got world enough in time, this coyness lady with no crime. 
and then you get the disposition of space and time between almost gendered in the first part until finally they all come down together at the end of the second part that collapse into the grave. The grave's a fine and private place that none, I think, do there embrace. And of course, private and private parts that we've been punning on throughout. I mean, the way I read it, it's, it is about his, an urge that, that he oh, it's has. About, it's about the urge that lots of people feel and about what happens to conventional expressions of that urge. In a sense, it's uh, a getting behind the scenes of a convention and showing there's a lot more going on than the use of the convention acknowledges. And I think a lot of very, very, very good poetry, great poetry, does that. It, it is in any way dealing with vernacular speech or vernacular conventions because a lot of the poetry of the 17th century is all conventional. Nobody's inventing a new form of talk. What keeps it in our mind as being so brilliant? You know, just sit down and work through the poem and see what all these things are doing and the way they go. It's incredibly rewarding. It, it's using a convention, but it's it, there's there's many using, different... Use a, well, using the convention and, as I say, getting behind the scenes, not being a victim of it. Not simply being an exercise in it, but transcending it. Uh, Think about Shakespeare jacket, with dramatic conventions. Shakespeare is possibly the greatest, probably the greatest poet in the English language. Undoubtedly. And although he happens to be writing in and of the theater, his greatness can be shown to be analogous to what very, very, very good poetry can do with respect to these conventions of its time, place, etc thing about Hamlet, for example, is it transcends the period, but it's it's of the period, but it's of our period, oh, too. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So I suppose that might be another definition of yeah. greatness. Well, I think, yes. I think it has to be a double-faced approach to its own, to its own time and getting beyond the time. You've got to be able to read it beyond its time. Chaucer is a very, very great, great poet, and you can't read him without footnotes. But he goes way beyond this time. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's why we think of in his time, beyond his time, etc. Mm. You've got to make certain kinds of allowances, or I would say you've got to fine-tune exactly what you mean. That is, you have to make allowances for conventions. I think Tennyson and Browning are both marvelous, marvelous poets. They couldn't be more different. And yet, in order to perceive how good they are, you have to make different kind of allowances for conventions. Browning is absolutely brilliant man. He was one of the smartest and smartest and most difficult poets of the 19th century. So I think of the, po- the great poets. Yeats was, was pretty intelligent. Eliot. These, these, these men were extremely well read. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense then that they would understand the convention? You have to understand the convention oh, in, order to, in order to... Yeah, sure. What about not so great? We don't have to name Swinburne has been attacked for having great talent, and oh, yet I love Swinburne. Swinburne's a wonderful poet. He can go on and on, and sometimes be. But what you have to allow for the fact is that he he allows himself for the fact that he can be silly. He wrote the very, very funniest, greatest parody of Swinburne is by Swinburne. So he knew it. He knew so what he, he knew was it. up to. He included him in a book, you know, a parody of himself. Of his time. And yet he can very, very strong poet. 
Rossetti, for example, I like Rossetti's poems. I think his painting is awful, and I don't like it at all. But the poems, why? Because despite certain mannerisms which it's easy to take for the poems themselves, they have a very strong power in, in a sort of browning way. He's a very interesting erotic poet. He's a Swinburne, but in a different way from Swinburne. Interesting how? Well, uh, the way he takes secondhand stuff from, from the, the period of Dante and runs it through a different kind of allegorical mood. I find astonishing things in Rossetti. There's a journal in blank verse that he kept on a tour he took with a friend to go to Paris and Belgium. It's called a trip to Paris and Belgium. To the Grand Tour? He went with Holman Hunt to see the Flemish paintings. And on the train, he would write what he saw out the train windows and in the station. It's a poem from about 1848 or so. It's the first poem I know of which describes or mentions what the world looks like through a moving train window. Isn't that interesting? Yeah? Uh, Something then, that no one previous to him could have, could only have imagined, that's right? That's right. Yeah. Well, and then when they get to a place, he'd write a sonnet about the cathedral. More of a set piece. But the language is so modern. I, I've read these lines to people and they've never been able to guess that it was Rossetti. Look, at one point he says, you know, watching him out the window, and he says, Our speed is such the sparks the engine leaves are burning after the whole train has passed. Mm-hmm. That sounds like Robert Frost. Well, for good reason, because Frost read Rossetti in his early, his early book is full of Rossetti. It's interesting how technology is influencing art. Yeah, well, technology simply is part of the world. How long does it take for a, a broken and broken down, fallen apart, rusted steel combine in a field to become as much a part of a natural ruin as an old stone tower. We're still in an age where we're not quite able to see it as that. The it's next not as age, attractive. The next age will. Speaking of looking out the window, yeah. are you okay for time? Yeah, uh, we should be. I'd like to uh, touch on your latest work, yeah. which is called A Draft of Light, Yes. poems by John Hollander. And uh, in the introduction, it says that here are poems that explore uh, the ways in which ordinary objects open doors to the more hidden subconscious truths of our inner selves. I thought of that when I thought of Rossetti observing things going by in the train, I suppose. Yeah. Things Uh, that may have looked different for for him mm -hmm. than they've ever looked before. A A lot of the objects which looked at the second time are looked at in a different, from a different angle. In this book, uh, a lot of the objects are hunks of language. That is to look at, I've always done that a little bit, but a lot more recently. Looking at cliches, for example? Sorry? At cliches? Not at cliches to denigrate and satirize them. But, and they don't even have to be cliches. They can be just ordinary, ordinary uses. But what does that mean? really conceal and where does that take me and if I suddenly say it over to myself in a different context where does that ooh there's a bee that's a fly oh good big fly (laughs) a fly as big as a bee isn't there something about a bee in here yes there's a poem about being stung by a bee oh that is a big big house fly so could we tie our previous discussion to what you're attempting here in your book well only to uh, I suppose only to the degree that I mean, these poems are various kinds, and some of them are comical but serious. At the same time. 
I, yeah. I suppose in my work, the opposite of solemn isn't funny. The opposite of solemn is frivolous. Funny and serious are not opposite. What's the opposite of funny for you? Funny and solemn. Serious and frivolous. Serious and frivolous, solemn and funny. Yes. So, in other words, I don't use serious as the opposite of frivolous. So frivolous can be serious? Yes. Or as funny can be serious. Funny line, funny lines up with serious. Perhaps you could uh, read us a seriously funny line here. Well, could maybe... I'm a big fan of Samuel Johnson, and I notice oh. you have something in there. Uh, oh, that's... Oh, yeah. All right, well, I could do that. That and possibly something that captures the serious and the funny, if you wish. Well, this one's called Dr. Johnson's Fable. This is from a few lines that were noted by Boswell on April 1773. In the garden of the palace dusk collected on the green, deepening it as the blankness quite took over. Lying on a leaf, a waiting firefly looked out across terraces and borders toward an upper window, through whose half-drawn curtains could be seen a candle steadily through the failing daylight burning. Seeing which, the modest insect had bewailed the, quote, littleness of its own light, till another wiser glowworm by him whispered, Wait a little. It will soon be dark. The candle then will seem to be flaring up into some higher brightness, till in cool illumination, flashing inner and unseen, there will come a sudden understanding then of what it means to have outlasted many of those glaring lights, which are only brighter as they haste to nothing. Wonderful. And, uh, here's a funny one. Okay. Johnson and Cor- both Johnson and Boswell uh, suffered depression. Uh, that darkness you talked oh, about, yes. I, oh, I don't know if that was... Yeah. Well, let's see. It's, it's something really short. That was wonderful, by the way. Thank you. Well, I'm going to read another fable, which is called Typing Lesson little fable we my generation all learned a sentence the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog which has everything all the letters and no repetition the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog they whoever they were say oh by the way in, in case any of you are familiar with the fables of La Fontaine you can understand why this poem is written the way it is with short and long lines and rhymes. Did Marion Moore uh, translate She translated them, not to my satisfaction, or to many of the people. There's a wonderful translation of all of La Fontaine's fables by a man named Norman Shapiro. Okay. Superb. They, whoever they are, say that there is always more than just one way to skin a cat or scamper quickly like a hungry rat right through the subset of the integers a bore to demonstrate this on the spot but its truth is revealed here in this wintry field when like a shot as they say and as if at some stern but unheard command over the lazy fox jumps the quick brown dog as if hurdling 
the scrawny looking log and unaware of any lurking paradox. Okay, but then one, but then what? Well, the slow fox yawns again and looks around, but not where the dog has gone. Yet then the over-eager hound, tumbling heels overhead, scampers about till he has found a bright green frisbee lying there instead. As for the doggy, I guess, and as for the alphabet, okay too. Yet represented no less well than it was before in a remix of the old 26, with some repeated paddingly, I must confess. Were there an empire whose decision could not be challenged, Fox maintains, still up to his old tricks, I'd win the point of the entire revision. But point not taken, Dog explains, refusing to defer to foxy casuistry, and you and I would probably concur. There is no winner here, for whether foxes fly over recumbent dogs or quite the opposite, all but a few downright and, alas, upright proverbs can be reversified. Yet that aside, wiser and semper fi, it is the dog always who remains more than proverbially true. Let sleeping foxes lie. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you so much.